Hi, my name is Ryan Hauser. You might have seen my name before on a Chatter Talk interview transcript. Uh, most of the time on the other side of the screen. But today, things are going to be different. Jordan Schneider is in the hot seat, and it is my task to give you that messy interview commemorating 2023. Jordan's first year working full-time on China Talk. Jordan, welcome back to China Talk. Ryan, I'm nervous. I have no idea what you have in store, but hopefully I, I survive the next hour. Fingers crossed. So I, one question I had, and it's kind of just a basic starter, folks are interested in what we might call the Jordan Schneider production function, um, how the sausage gets made, and kind of what future plans are, are looking like for uh, uh, what you're doing with China Talk. You know, this is your first year doing it full time. Uh, what has changed the most for you personally and professionally in making that switch? So let me start with sort of how I plan the like content for China Talk which is basically me completely leaning into what I think is interesting and important. And I am like incredibly grateful that you all have um, stuck with me as uh, I've started, you know, initially the show was called China Econ Talk. I did a lot of macro stuff. Um, and, you know, as it's evolved to, to, to do more ch Chinese history, Chinese politics, and increasingly, you know, China and technology and even sort of U.S. Uh, science and technology policy. And kind of as I follow my interests, like that is the direction that I take, um, uh, you know, the interviews I do, the stuff I write um, and, you know, what 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 China Talk ends up becoming going from having a job. Uh, you know, having a day job to having, um, you know, to doing this full time, I think the sort of um, like weight and responsibility and like degrees of freedom all ended up increasing. So there was nothing to occupy me for 40, 50 hours um, a week. So that kind of process of, um, you know, finding out what's online, what old books I want to dive into, and then seeing how to turn what I am able to learn from them into uh, stuff that hopefully can in in inform you all, um, just allowed me to be, to, to range wider, read deeper, be more ambitious and do a lot more with the podcast. I mean, I went from doing I, we, 40 shows to 80 shows. We had like 40 newsletters in 2022. We had over 150 in, 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 in 2023. So, um, I am like, incredibly grateful that you guys all you know listen and support and engage with this content and allow me to um you know take on this role of now having what is the um i guess like the last standing uh interview focused china uh, uh sort of generalist china podcast and um you know i take this responsibility really seriously and hopefully uh end up putting out stuff which um you guys all find interesting and useful yeah uh i think a lot of people might have uh, been overwhelmed with just the amount to uh to research and to analyze with all that free time but you uh, really leaned into it just uh your conference attendance alone uh is uh striking to me yeah it's it's fun it's fun traveling i do think like and i'm and i'm curious to hear back from from you all um you know whether the right the right move in 2024 is to dial it back a little bit. And, um, you know, I'm not sure the sort of balance between like 
Dwarkesh, Tyler Cowen style, like I read five books for an hour and a half of content shows as opposed to the, oh, this news thing happened. Like, let's get the gang together and chat about it. Um, I necessarily hit quite right. I think, you know, speaking of like having these empty days to fill up, I probably, um, you know, just like out of my ADD and like sitting at home all day, did more of those like rapid reaction sort of like, you know, less prep required episodes um, then maybe right for like to, to really provide the most uh, value and make the most informative content. Um, so yeah, we'd be curious to hear from uh, you all, uh, you know, to what extent you, you enjoy the emergency pods versus the, the sort of like deep read style shows. Yeah. The, it's, it's always a tension between, you know, uh, the, the urgent and, you know, sort of the long-term analysis I did. It, personally, I found some of our, uh, emergency episodes, especially on the conflict in Israel, um, to be particularly helpful in kind of making sense of, uh, some difficult situations and also just realizing, you know, going back to our name, just how China fits into that, uh, greater play. Uh, one reader writes in, Writing a long-form Substack runs against the trend of internet attention spans getting shorter. Uh, what would a 40-second video version of China Talk look like, and is it worth it to make content like that? So NS Lyons, who writes the Upheaval Substack, which is sort of China-related, um, uh, answered a question about why he does long-form writing on Substack, saying, let me advise anyone who will listen, don't write long-form. It's just not worth it. If you really want to successfully grow a Substack, release something quick and formulaic at least once a week. Channel your inner Heather Cox Richardson. Only write essays like me if you are a masochist with a dying need to hammer out your scratch thoughts on paper, enjoying long stretches of watching your subscriber count dwindle away, and um, and are probably just slightly mad. Um, I I empathize with that. It is. Um, it, it seems like a fair description of you. Yeah, it's like, what am I doing all day reading these books from the 1920s about um, uh, you know, the impact of uh, telegraph and and you know the early burgeonings of like radar on warfare um i i do it because i feel compelled to um basically there's things that i think are really interesting and really kind of important for policymakers to think think about grapple with kind of add to their um you know bank of uh, analogies or perspectives other as they're thinking about how to um you know deal with strategic competition broadly defined and that's why I do this. Um, you know, th there are there are lots of different versions of what I could be doing that I think would get me a bigger audience, be more viral, make more money. But, um, you know, I am trying as hard as I can to stay true to the like little mission I have for this outlet of trying to um, expose and help platform the most um uh, important and uh, rigorous and thoughtful analysis uh, on the topic set that I think is going to define the 21st century. But yeah, I should be doing another job <laughs> if I wanted to maximize uh, earnings or, uh, uh, or, uh, or or lifestyle for sure. This is not an earn to give operation. <laughs> if only, if only. Yeah, working towards it. Um, Huawei, TikTok, come on. We're still waiting. Right. We're yeah, still we're waiting for, for advertisers. Call. <laughs> gotta gotta get in on the ground floor here yeah I, I did have one question for you um on the kind of the origins of china talk um, you mentioned it uh china econ talk is that a, a direct 
reference to Russ Roberts' uh, econ talk, or was that just an independent thing? Indeed, Ryan. Uh, I actually had Russ Roberts on over in like you know maybe the first uh, fifty episodes or so. I was a macro econ analyst right before I went to um, to PKU in 2017, and I was just a big fan of econ talk and figured and sort of searched China and economics on Spotify trying to find a show and was sort of shocked that no one was covering this on a sort of sustained basis in English in, in English and figured that would be a lane to uh, initially start to um, uh, um, start to explore. A couple a uh, couple questions for you uh, from some readers. Uh, someone writes in and asks, what part of life in China do you miss the most? Oh, my God. What do I miss most about China? I mean, the people. Absolutely. It's like a it's a it, it sort of breaks my heart that, um, you know, you see those stats where like pre covid you had 10,000 Americans studying in China and in 2023 it was like 75. Um, I think they're, uh, you know, as the sort of, you know, strength of the competition intensifies and the rhetoric grows like it's important to understand that there are like human beings on uh the 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 other side of this and um that there is something sort of like magical and energizing and inspiring um and incredibly charismatic about uh you know about like chinese people writ large i mean i don't want to generalize too much like basically my sample size is like highly educated people who uh you know lived in beijing um but from that and you know the travel i did around the the country i just you know i i have so many memories of of um you know incredible interpersonal uh uh experiences and um you know that i guess it doesn't happen um when you're in your own when your home country is much like partially like your brain is just sort of turned off to um you know what is interesting and different you're not kind of in this like explore mode but i also think there's just something kind of like the 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 type of is around in uh, 21st century China is, uh, that I was exposed to was was really special and u- unique and it's something I am uh, um, I miss for sure. One reader asks, uh, "What's the non-existent book on China you would most like to read or write?" Ooh, um, I mean, look, it's the biography of Xi, uh, which I think is kind of impossible uh to write nowadays there's just like uh you know there i've read the four versions of academics who've tried to piece everything together and there's just not enough sources to really um paint um a deep picture of it the one i'm super excited about joseph terigian um is taking on she's dad um and because you know he lived in the uh sort of the revolutionary era and through the cultural revolution into the 1980s um there's a lot of stuff about him and i think sort of like that is probably going to be the closest we're going to get for a very long time. Um, but, uh, you know, in the meantime, we're just stuck with these speeches, <laughs> um, which are uh, which are kind of brutal. And, you know, you can learn some things from them. But, um, you know, comparing reading the sort of like color and depth that you get out of, um, you know, a Chiang Kai-shek biography, a Mao biography, a Deng biography, a Zhou Enlai biography, um, it's... Uh, it's unfortunate that we don't uh, we're we're not able to see a richer picture of this man. What guests would you most like to have on the show but can't? You know, my favorite type of guest is the kind of older scholar figure who've spent who's already spent 30, 40 years thinking about 
um, you know, a topic relating to, uh, you know, China, U.S.-China relations, technology. And there aren't that many people like that out there. Um, and a few of them have died on me as I've tried to I've, I tried to book them. Ezra Vogel, um, I had something scheduled for um, Jonathan Spence. I've, ne- I've never gotten to. Um, and that is, um, uh, you know, that's. That's, I guess, like the nature of the business. I'm, uh, if I was, if I was doing shows about Lincoln, there'd be a deeper bench. Um, but there's, there's just not a lot of folks out there who've spent their lives, um, you know, engaging in, in, in scholarship and research on these, um, uh, on these types of issues. It might be an impossible question, but do you think we'll continue to have a sort of supply of those kinds of uh, senior scholars going forward? Yeah, I mean, you know, hope springs eternal. I think that. You know, there's 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 forty thousand of you out there who are interested enough to listen to this podcast. Like, um, if uh, half a percent of those folks uh, are considering uh, careers in 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 reading and writing, I'm optimistic that uh, of that bunch, like, we'll end up having some great China Talk guests in in 2050. So, um, uh, yeah, I'm not I'm not super like it's a bummer, but uh, you had great books come out on the Soviet Union. Um, during the Cold War. It's it's possible. Um, and, you know, we're not, it's not as bad as it was in the, you know, writing about the USSR in the 60s or 70s. So I'm, I'm, I'm optimistic that we'll get um, plenty of good China books in the coming, uh, uh, in the coming decades to come. Uh, what was it like interviewing Kirk Campbell in the Eisenhower Executive Office building? And kind of as an extension of that, do you think in-person interviews are overrated or underrated? It was stressful. I'm worried I let you guys all down a little bit. Um, I think I was like kind of overawed. Um, you know, he's the most high profile person. You know, I I, I did Jake Sullivan, but back then uh, in 2019, but back then he was still a professor. It was just kind of a, uh, a much more relaxed thing than like interviewing a sitting national security advisor. Um, I think I settled in um, over the course of it, um, but it was the sort of experience where uh you know i'd prepared generally with these shows i have as much time as i need um and i you know i had an hour and a half worth of questions and he had 45 minutes with me um so it felt like i was like using like all of my podcaster skills to uh to like the maximum uh extent to try to like make sure i was um you know making the most of that time um and I do think sort of more broadly, there's like a learning process that I'm still on of figuring out how to make these sitting officials interesting. Um, it really helps when they're, uh, you know, they are sort of former scholars themselves and have, uh, you know, thought for a long time and have, you know, written records that I can engage with of uh, sort of how their, how their uh, analysis of this stuff has evolved. Um, you know, I, I enjoy them. I am not trying to turn into a beat writer, um, and like break news on these things. Um, but I do think that, uh, you know, doing these interviews of, of, of politicians or, um, appointed officials, uh, is a good use of my time. And I think the sort of style that I can, um, uh, bring helps make the, you know, what you're seeing in the, in the papers a little more, uh, richer and, and, um, comprehensible, hopefully. So, um, looking forward to doing more of them in the future, but I do think the mix of, you know, maybe like have it max out at like 10% of the shows, um, probably is the right one going forward. Yeah. Yeah. And that makes a lot of sense. We're not trying to, 
you know, have gotcha questions with anyone trying to get that, uh, that media analysis, uh, talking about Mike Gallagher's dissertation and, yeah, I mean, the thing is, like, they're they're really good, right? And you need to be, in order to, like, do gotcha right, you need to have trained that skill, you know, for a long time. Um, and, you know, this is not something that I've, I've, I've invested in. So I think, like, you know, playing to my comparative advantage is probably the, uh, the right way to go. Yeah, it's uh, the, the real reason we don't do gotcha is not because uh, we're morally superior. It's because it's difficult and they have way more practice. They are they are yeah. the stationary bandits warding off uh, the usurper. So uh, <laughs> we're, we're we're new to that game. One thing that I'm curious about uh, is just how you see China talk, uh, or even just yourself personally, uh, fitting into the broader landscape of both existential risk research and more broadly effective altruism. Um, obviously, there's sort of Socially, a lot of overlap, um, you know, kind of between uh, people that we've worked with, people we've had on the show. Uh, but I'm kind of curious more about your uh, philosophical background, how you look at those issues and how you frame things. Uh, that's a good question. I mean, I think the sort of like way I like plug into that universe, I guess, um, is probably best exemplified by this essay I wrote for Open Philanthropies. They had some uh, uh, it was like a cause essay competition where I was like, look, World War III would really suck. Um, and like US-China World War III is like one of the more likely World War Threes that we could see in the coming century. So it probably behooves us to have the best sort of understanding that we can about you know what's going on in China, what's going on in the US and the kind of interaction and dynamics between these two countries, um, you know the future of technology, the, the rest of the region and the alliance relationships and, and, and so on. And so backing down from like war is terrible um, into okay, let's sort of um, try to interrogate what could potentially lead us there and how we can you know not end up in that situation is is the sort of, uh, you know, driving ethos, I think, for a lot of what I do here. Um, and then I try to keep myself sane uh, by <laughs> reading some Proust and Chinese television and occasionally doing shows, you know, about like, you know, ch ancient Chinese painting or um, or, or television or, um, uh, you know, open AI dev day uh, just to kind of like distract myself from like the the weight of uh, thinking about uh, great power conflict. Do you see the work you're doing uh, on China Talk as like actively lowering sort of, you know, P doom vis-a-vis, -vis, you know, Taiwan, some other conflict with China? Um, or does it feel just like, you know, if we can just convince one policymaker, it'll be worth it? Oh, I don't know. I mean, the thing is, like, I don't know the answer to these questions. Like, you know, escalate, de-escalate, like more troops, less troops, like say this thing on a communicate, say that thing on a communicate. Like, I don't, I don't know what, I have no like takes that I feel particularly strongly about, uh, about what's going to get us to a 21st century, which is like rich and prosperous and peaceful. I guess I can say like, I have some moderately confident opinions about certain topics I've spent a lot of time on around, you know, say semiconductor export controls, but there are a lot of corners of emerging technology policy and, you know, U.S.-China relations that we cover on this show, where I don't have particularly strong views about, you know, what is the right playbook that uh, Western capitals should be following when it comes to engaging with and responding to China. So 
um, you know, more than having this like vision of like, you know, the, the, we're, we're all driving in the dark here to come back to um, uh, Richard Danzig, right? But I think the, the one thing we sort of know we don't want to have happen is a, um, is, you know, a, a, a full-blown conflict between the U.S. and China. So um, trying to help paint in the analytical picture of what it is that is driving those things, what's driving kind of like rev- relative, you know, national power, economic competitiveness, technological advancement um, and helping people think through these issues um, in a more structured, holistic, um, less breathless way is really what I'm um, going for with this whole endeavor. Yeah. And I, I definitely think that your, your deep reading in the history of science and tech has got a long way to uh, helping accomplish that. Um, yeah. I mean, again, it's the, it's the tyranny of the, of the urgent, but to be able to read like the, the social history of the machine gun and make comparisons about, you know, what's going on now with AI, semiconductors, that sort of thing. It's a, a worthwhile endeavor. Uh, will generative AI make the value of language learning obs- obsolete or should wannabe China hands still do the hard work and learn Chinese? It, it is really incredible how much better translation software has gotten from when I started studying Chinese, which was not that long ago in 2017 to um today like you can really you can get really far in doing um analysis um by just google translating stuff or asking chat gpt to tell you what to do i like i think the ultimate value that investing in language learning is going to bring you is the time that you end up carving out to kind of immerse yourself in a culture and a society um, and the relationships that you end up building and, um, you know, perspectives that you end up being, you know, exposed to on a human level that wouldn't necessarily happen if you kind of only experienced another country through Google translated websites. So I have like a, you know, moderate to high degree of confidence in that. I think just you know, reading history and understanding how, um, you know, all these intelligence assessments have been dramatically wrong because of like fundamentally missing aspects of society that you would, you know, have a slightly better sense of if you spent a lot of time in that country or you really spoke the language and had this sort of like cultural fluency um, to understand things. And, you know, obviously there are aspects of that, of getting you know, so close to a subject where you maybe are start missing the, um, uh, missing the forest for the trees. But, um, I'm, I'm pretty skeptical that in 20 years, people will not find value in, um, investing in language. Now, you know, maybe we'll get to the point where like a babble fish in your ear will be so good that you can develop those, um, uh, you know, relationships and, you know, that the, the AI can feed you that like context that you would only kind of pick up in a subtle way. Cause you know, it'll be your Google glass and be seeing and hearing everything you do and, you know, have downloaded the entire like cultural memory of a nation that it can just translate into something that makes more sense to you. So I, I don't think it's, you know, it's possible that we'll, we'll, we'll end up in that future. And, you know, there's, I think something kind of like beautiful and magical about that as well, that, you know, not, Oh, that many people on the planet are going to have the sort of 
time and luxury to be able to um, invest in, in, in exploring a, um, a, a nation and a country and its culture. So um, I don't think it's the worst possible world if um, uh, I end up looking back and being like, man, if I was just born 10 years later, like I would have um, uh, been able to do this without spending a lot of time on Anki memorizing, memorizing flashcards. There is a ton of like not magical, like less fun, like prosaic pain um, that uh, is built into uh, learning something as far away from your native tongue as Chinese. Do you have a sense of what our most popular episode was uh, with the metric of downloads by downloads this year? I think the Kotkin one blew up. That's like a clear number one. Number two, maybe Jason Matheny. And then number three, I don't know, Gallagher? Ah, th- those are all good guesses. Uh, unfortunately, uh, Matheny and Gallagher uh, didn't make the top five, though they're certainly up there. Kotkin was number one. You got that right. Number two was Tyler Cowan. Um, uh, then number three was Noah Smith. Um, in terms of readership, this this one might be a little bit easier. Uh, can you knock off like our, our top five countries by readership? I think it's it's like very Anglo. It's like U.S., then U.K., then Canada, uh, then like Australia, and then five. It's like either like France or Hong Kong. I think. Yeah, that's that's real close. Uh, we got in order uh, United States, United Kingdom, Australia, Canada. Uh, to complete the five eyes all the way down, uh, we have New Zealand coming in at 1%. But of course, Ooh, okay. there's like, you know, maybe, uh, you know, 20 people who live there. So that's not surprising. Taiwan and Japan uh, showing up both at, uh, at 2%. And then China, of course, uh, uh, coming in at three percent. Yeah, I mean the thing is, so this is only tracking the podcast downloads, not the newsletter. And that's right. Yeah. Um, you know, the podcast itself is like not super accessible in China. Um, you need to uh kind of add the RSS feed directly or be on a foreign app store because we are no longer in uh the sort of uh, Apple Podcasts in China, and you can't search us on like Chinese podcast apps like Sumalaya or Xiaoyuzhou. So. Um, I have like a pretty high degree of confidence that there's more than 2% of our, uh, uh, readership for the newsletter, at least that is, that's inside the PRC, but, um, not that, that shocked, makes a lot of I sense. guess, um, that the podcast numbers are kind of low. Tell us about what you've been watching, uh, both in domestic and foreign films and streaming. Uh, what stands out to you and how does that shape your analysis? I think my favorite TV show of the year was the Taiwanese show on Netflix called Making Waves. It's like a 12-part miniseries written by a former um, campaign, like junior campaign person, kind of about uh, uh, the sort of drama of a presidential campaign. And, you know, there's, there's, it's fun. You got these, like, you know, themes of, of uh, you know, backdealing and corruption and feminism. And there, there's, I think, something... Who, something for someone who spends so much time thinking about the mainland China, about mainland China, like that's actually really moving of like watching democracy happen in this language where you are exposed to the opposite of democracy um, on a, on a, on a day-to-day basis. And so, um, you know, for that only as, you know, uh, setting aside the aspect of this, just like, you know, being a compelling piece of uh, television, uh, I'd highly recommend folks to check it out. I guess the other, my favorite mainland show was probably uh, this reality show called Zhongdiba, um, which was basically took these like 20 year old 
pretty boys who are all kind of like trying to make it in entertainment. And it was a reality show set on a farm over the course of a year. And they basically had this like little plot of land, had no idea what they were doing. And their whole job over the course of the show was to like figure out how to, you know, turn a profit. And they end up having to like ask all the neighbors of like how to plant the thing and how to get the, and then the tractor gets stuck in the mud and they got to push it around. And then like, they're really happy when like the DGI sponsored drone like ends up showing up and helping them, you know, like lay their seed in a much more efficient manner. So, you know, it's just like weird, like, like old, but new, like kind of like valorizing, like rural, like back to roots China while at the same time, you know, bringing in all this modern stuff. It was just like a good slice of life thing and reminder that like, it's not all, uh, you know, nuclear missiles and war in the South China Sea. Um, that's, that's going on in, um, uh, uh, in China today. Yeah, that's that's interesting. It sounds like a, a mix between like maybe like Survivor and the Xi Jinping origin story going out amongst the people, you know, learning to <laughs> cultivate the land and good morals. Absolutely. So uh, recently I got to look at uh, your media and book diet uh, for the past year. And of course, on Twitter, you've been tweeting a lot about Proust. Uh, I myself have not read Proust, but I'm curious uh, how that's informed your analysis and just some of the other uh, uh, books and literature, uh, especially fiction, um, and kind of how you see that playing into uh, the analytic process. Oh, man. I don't know if it plays maybe in a deep subconscious way. I think uh, me and my wife, we started listening to Proust on our honeymoon, um, like on a southern France road trip. And we just didn't want to leave the car. Um, because the language is just so beautiful and evocative and like resonates so deeply. And then for the past year and a half, we've been spending, we've been like going to sleep most nights to, um, to it. We've like gotten completely lost. We have no idea what's happening at this point, but just even getting these like little slices and gems, every third paragraph, like the guy just takes your breath away. Um, you know, how has it impacted my scholarship like i feel like i know you know i'm like a b plus writer a minus writer or something but it's always great to just be humbled and like know that there are just so many levels to this and proust in particular like i truly other classics i've come across like they hit his level once every 15 pages or something um but just the kind of ideas and what he can evoke maybe because he's like a little more modern and and kind of closer to the lives that we live today um makes him more resonant but um it's been a joy and i am like so excited i have the rest of my life to um you know to work through all of his um uh, all of his corpus i just wanted to add that the best cultural experience i had this year was actually college theater so my little brother for his senior project at yale put on hamlet and played the title role Getting to see four productions of that play and watch his performance evolve and mature over the course of the run was just the biggest treat for me. Um, by the way, China Talk audience, he just graduated and after being subjected to more than a decade of familial pressure to do literally anything else with his life, he has persevered with acting and is committed to trying to make it as a professional. If you're listening and have any insight into this industry or could provide him, I don't know, tips or solace, uh, I would love to put you in touch. Uh, please reach out, Jordan, at chinatalk.media. 
do you want to try to to uh, make some informed and educated guesses uh, about quotes uh, from various guests? Do it. All right. Um, let's start off the first one. One of my personal favorites. Uh, for Russians, it is absolutely incomprehensible that the federal government in D.C. could have a major investment plan thwarted by a senator from West Virginia. It's unimaginable. Most Russian people, including people with resources, people with power, would not really believe that had happened. Feels like Camille Galeev. That's right. You got it. Another uh, maybe easy one. You can't be half communist just like you can't be half pregnant. So the party uh, is either a monopoly or it begins to unravel. There's no political reform equilibrium. The great Stephen Kotkin. What we have to do is just surge the right type of hard power to the Indo-Pacific, into the first island chain in particular, to make it fundamentally unpalatable uh, military proposition for Xi Jinping. That is the thing we must do within the next five years before it's too late. This is Gallagher. That's Gallagher. Kindness is often underrated. Sometimes managers think, well, so-and-so is a jerk, but they're brilliant, so it's worth hiring them or keeping them on. In my experience, that very rarely works out. Um, this was Jason Matheny, and that was really a striking quote. I'm, I'm, would be, I wonder what sort of percentage of like DC politicos would ever say something like that. It seems to be, I would say like sub 10%. There's a lot of talk about, you know, sort of emotional intelligence, that sort of thing, but very few people operationalize it. And, uh, I was excited about that conversation with Jason. I mean, we got three articles out of it. Uh, if you haven't listened to, uh, that episode or read the articles i definitely recommend going back and doing uh here, here's maybe a slightly trickier one greek tragedy helps us understand she he cannot renounce his claim to taiwan because his ambition is too overweening his sense that any sign of concession evinces weakness is too repugnant to him so we run into a complicated human being who i think is throwing the switch on this in a way that could be catastrophic this this one's oracle show that's oracle show I think my recent experience, at least with the top levels of leadership, would suggest that even more than practical or specific steps, ideology is at the core of what drives China's today. You cannot understand or engage effectively without an understanding about how important ideology is to Xi Jinping and his lieutenants. Yeah, this, this is Kirk Campbell, right? That's Kirk Campbell. Okay. All right. Well, in 2024, I'm going to have to maybe pick some more obscure ones. I, you more or less nailed them. This is the this is the danger of editing your own audio. You hear your you hear the interviews four times each exactly uh, each go around. Normally, you end each episode uh, with a request for a song. Uh, my question for you is: How do you choose these songs uh, and go about that process? And what should we end with now? So the times I pick my own music is either when the guest kind of comes up blank or they suggest a song that just like isn't above the bar for quality that I'd be comfortable with subject subjecting you all to. Um, interestingly, like half the audience makes it to the end of every episode. And of that, only 25% stick around for the end of the song. So here's to the real ones who make it here. I guess this is the last you'll all be hearing from me in 2023. I just wanted to say one last time, thank you to everyone who has been involved in working on the show, um, contributing to the newsletter, listening, um, and just being a part of this journey that I've been on. It's, it's sort of surreal to think back um, when I first started this seven years ago that this could be something I could rely on for an income. I feel really blessed and I also feel like I have a real sense of responsibility to make sure that um, the work I am doing with this platform is um, uh, trying to bring the world somehow in, the, in a positive direction. So 
For the outro for this edition, I want to leave you all with what I think is the most beautiful song to ever grace uh, the podcast. And I'm going to leave it up to Rory Metcalf, a former guest, to do his own introduction. A few years back, we recorded a show about the quad, and this is the song he chose for it. The song I've chosen to uh, to close our conversation is um, by a fantastic Australian Indigenous uh, artist, Indigenous singer, Dr. Uh, G. Yurupingu, uh, known as Gurumul, uh, who sadly passed away a few years ago. But this song, um, which was one of his really greatest, uh, greatest hits, also was performed in a historic concert he gave in India in 2012 to really mark the renewed friendship between Australia and India, uh, alongside Anushka Shankar, in fact. Um, it speaks of mythological beings uh, visiting northern Australia, probably from the Indonesian archipelago. It may have been based on the, uh, the fact that there were uh, fishermen from Indonesian islands who would visit northern Australia to, to harvest the, the tripang, the sea cucumber. But it's a beautiful song really about friendship and connection across the sea. So I guess it has an Indo-Pacific quality to it and, and it's a really amazing, uh, amazing song.
Hold on now. 